this is Catch 22 Minutes. Hello, this is Stella Tsandekidou, Head of Policy at Catch22, and this is the Catch22 podcast policy series. Romance fraud in the UK has seen a significant increase in recent years. According to Lloyds Bank, there was a 30% increase in romance scam reports last year. The average amount lost by each victim was over £8,000, and men now make up the majority of reported cases particularly those aged between 65 and 74, who are most likely to be tricked. Barclays Bank also reported a surge in romance scams, noting that people aged 51 to 60 are the most susceptible, accounting for over a third of all money lost to these scams. Despite over half of the younger age group, 21 to 30 years, being confident they would not be a victim, they are actually twice as likely to fall victim compared to those aged 51 to 60. Barclays emphasizes the emotional impact these scams have on victims beyond the financial losses. There is a plethora of evidence online about the red flags to look out for when dating, such as profile inconsistencies, quick replies, and unusual requests for money. So social media is still a key attack vector for these scams. And scammers increasingly use all sorts of of apps, not just Tinder or, or Hinge, but also Google Hangouts, as well as online games to reach victims who aren't even actively looking for a relationship. So these findings show us that Romance fraud is evolving and it is increasing in sophistication, as well as the broad range of people who are falling victims to these frauds. At Catch22, we are seeing an increasing number of people coming to our services with romance fraud cases, and we see that often they have very few options to find justice as these crimes mostly take place online. So this is a very important policy issue that has not yet uh, been looked into. With me to discuss the rise in romance fraud is Elizabeth Carter. Liz, would you like to introduce yourself and tell us a bit about what you do and what got you interested in romance fraud? Yes, indeed. Thanks, Stella. Uh, I'm Dr. Elizabeth Carter. I'm a criminologist and a forensic linguist, and I'm based at Kingston University in London. And what I do is I analyse the interactions between fraudsters and victims. So I look at the text messages, the emails, the the WhatsApps, any any communications that they have, um, telephone conversations and so on. And I analyse these using forensic linguistic and criminological techniques such as critical discourse analysis. And what my research has shown is that the language is very clever and it's very subtle uh, to manipulate uh, victims of this crime. And the language in frauds is very similar to the language used in domestic abuse and coercive control. And this is absolutely key to try and understand how people can become victim of this crime and also uh, know the compassion that victims need um, when they have reported they've been a victim. Um, In terms of where I came from, um, like most people in the fraud space, I come from a variety of backgrounds and I'm a linguist um, by trade. And I moved into criminology fairly on um, in my master's degree and uh, I ended up 
um, looking at police interviews using these um, interactional techniques. And I quickly realised that fraud is the place to be when you're trying to understand how can these criminals be so effective and to um, make people do things that they know is outside of, of their psychological and financial well-being. But in the time, in that moment, it feels right so you are a linguist. That's very interesting. And how 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 did you go from from being a linguist to how did you find out that this is this is something that's very important and uh, that languages uh, can perhaps help with finding solutions to to tackling fraud? Yes, I started off in linguistics and psycholinguistics, and then I started studying how language can um, be used, particularly in cases of brain injuries, um, how it can be used in rehabilitation, but also how it can be damaged with with different types of brain injuries. And moving into um, criminology from my master's degree, I was very interested in, in the language in police interviews and how language can be used by police officers and also by suspects for their respective roles. So police officers obviously trying to get the truth, um, get get um, information from that suspect and suspects needing to present a very truthful facade, even if it's uh, even if they're guilty of the offence or not, they're trying to make their way through a very high stakes environment. And I found they used all sorts of different techniques. And one of them was laughter. And I thought, wow, laughter is something you wouldn't normally find in a very constrained, high-stakes situation. It's conversational. And uh, I I made lots of um, strategy changes around policing. And then I started becoming more and more aware of of fraud and thinking, well, actually, it's being used here for a very um, uh, disturbing, um, a very disturbing way. And it's being used to make people part with their money and personal details and leaves them psychologically harmed and financially bereft as well. And I thought, well, I have these skills. I have these techniques. I want to use them where it can be best, um, have best use and have some kind of impact, um, either to try and prevent people from becoming victim of fraud, um, but also to help victims that have that have been in that situation to understand that it's not their fault and they have been groomed. And I'm in a really lucky position that my research has been able to be used in policy and practice across the entire counter-fraud sphere. Um, And it's a great source of personal pride to me that individual victims have had a better experience because of the research. This is very interesting, and I'm sure you have a lot to do to teach us about public messaging as well later on in the conversation. But first, a very general question, just to set the basis. How would you define romance fraud? Romance fraud is when an individual believes that they're in a legitimate, real romantic relationship with someone, but in fact, the person that they believe they're in a relationship with is actually only in that interaction in order to try and take their money or personal details or both. And it looks like romance fraud is rising. Is it actually rising? Is there, have you seen, uh, is there data that proves that this is rising, that that it didn't used to be as much of a problem? And do you have an idea of uh, what could be behind um, these changing, uh, these rising Roman fraud cases. Yes, it is rising and there's a number of reasons for it and also a few caveats. I'm always full of caveats when we talk about data. And the reason for that is that a rise in reporting um, doesn't necessarily equate to a rise in number of crimes. What we do have is a chronically 
underreported crime when we're talking about fraud. Current estimates say it's only around 15% of victims ever report they've been a victim of fraud to the authorities, which is action fraud um, if you're if you're in the UK, but also if you're in Scotland specifically, you need to dial 101 for that to report fraud. And such a low proportion of victims of this crime ever report it. So it might be that more people are reporting the crime. And I believe that's the case in the rise in reports in terms of the younger age brackets. Um, they're becoming um, happier to report these types of crimes. Um, the, the reason behind the lack of reporting is usually shame or not knowing where to report the crimes. And a lot of my research centres around trying to drive down that shame um, particularly um, in wider society, that, you know, how could you fall for it narrative? I'm trying to get stamped out for good. And linking fraud to domestic abuse and coercive control is a really key part of that because we have that innate um, sympathy and empathy with victims of those most fastidious of crimes, uh, but yet we don't with fraud. And I'm trying to make that link quite strongly through my work. But having said that, I do believe that romance fraud is rising. And a key component of that is COVID-19, where a lot of people, most people made that move online in order to um, communicate and socialise and develop relationships more so than, than ever before. And also you find more criminals in the online arena as well um, to try and defraud this larger number of individuals who are in that space and perhaps hadn't been there before. So it's it's two things, really. Yeah. So would you say that the tactics are changing? The tactics that the Roman, more Romans fraudsters are using are changing as well? And what are these tactics? The, the tactics themselves largely remain consistent, although they change slightly in relation to wider context. One of the key things that romance fraudsters do, and any fraudsters actually do, is link what they're saying to context. So during COVID, for example, when everyone um, was in lockdown and you couldn't leave your house, um, there were a lot of um, shopping delivery frauds, for example, because it made sense given the context. Um, disinfectant services of driveways and things like that. And then later on, vaccination frauds as well. And with romance fraud, these uh, criminals would use excuses such as, you know, I'm I'm in the NHS, I'm a nurse, I'm a doctor, um, I need supplies, I'm, I'm away from my friends, I can't socialise with anyone because I'm in the hospital every day. And they'd use those kinds of tactics to try and explain why they couldn't meet, why they couldn't video call. Uh, so it's usually very similar tactics um, across all types of romance fraud, um, no matter if they're female or, or male perpetrators, but with a slight twist given that context. And what unites all of them are some main areas. Uh, one of them is isolation. Really important to isolate victims from asking um, advice or opinions from people around them because it's a bubble of coercion and people on the inside don't know it's happening people on the outside can see it quite easily which feeds into that false narrative that um, victims of fraud can see it but don't do anything about it you can't really see it once you're in a grooming relationship and another one is getting somebody to respond quickly in a so-called hot state so they feel compelled and worried and they need to act urgently and that stops individuals from taking that time to think through, look at evidence, maybe look up online, um, 
you know, names of the person in the profile or do a reverse image search and those things that we tell people to do. And finally, they draw on this um, innate characteristic of all all good humans, um, which is sympathy and empathy. And they say they're in certain situations which will draw a protective response from the victim. And this can start really early in the relationship before money's even mentioned. Uh, for example, you know, saying, um, oh, I've, I've been scammed before. I'm really worried about dating online. This is the fraudsters saying this, that they're worried about being defrauded um, online. And then immediately that puts the victim, the person they're speaking to, into a position where they feel like they have to be really gentle with the person they're interacting with. They have to be really careful not to scare them. So they're already trying to protect them. And this is one of the key similarities between fraud and domestic abuse and coercive control, where the victim feels responsible for the fraudster's psychological or physical well-being. And that's when they start asking for money. So this is very interesting. Um, Have you watched the Tinder swindler on Netflix? I have indeed. Yes, (laughs) that's I think that's the most popular um, podcast. pop depiction of uh, of romance fraud that most people will be aware of and I was absolutely shocked when I watched it it's interesting that you are saying about people pretending to be nurses and doctors and working for the NHS during the pandemic I wasn't aware of that uh, but obviously it would make a lot of sense that scammers would uh, would, would use that as an excuse um, I wonder how much do you think the public is aware of this of these sort of tactics because i have to say when i watched the twin tinder swindler what what really really shocked me is the fact that the women that were scammed they were scammed for m- huge amounts of money and they were all very you know professional um um, women who 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 know how to use uh, social media and dating apps, c- clearly quite intelligent individuals who who had a social network themselves. They, so they weren't isolated. They were certainly lonely to an extent. They were looking for for a, for a relationship, but they weren't what would come to your mind when you're thinking about you know the average romance fraud uh, victim. Yes, and that's a really interesting thing, really, because romance fraud victims are by and large intelligent, professional um, and not really what this societal image of of what a a romance fraud victim should be. And that's really what prevents a lot of people from reporting because they say, oh, it shouldn't be me. It should be someone who um, isn't intelligent, doesn't doesn't know how to use the internet and all these kinds of things, or maybe someone who's older, but that's all really a fallacy. And in, in regards to the Tinder Swindler, um, the Netflix series, it did bring romance fraud and fraud more generally to the public consciousness, which is good. However, it was damaging in that it didn't show the full extent of the grooming uh, that the women were subjected to. So they were operating within that very same situation where they'd been groomed and coerced and their reality had been distorted to the point where they believed they were making good decisions. And it didn't put that across um, in that show. So, and crucially, viewers couldn't put themselves in the victim's shoes, whereas in reality, in that situation, they would have acted exactly the same. 
Um, also, interestingly, the social media response to that was was quite telling. And I think it's very gendered, a victim shaming and victim blaming. And there were lots of messages saying that the victims were gold diggers and all this kind of thing. But really, these are ordinary, intelligent women who are doing something that's completely normal and completely allowed, which is looking for love and being attracted by somebody who has money which is not a bad or shameful thing at all so it's it's and it's quite interesting that the that the criminal was kind of glorified a little bit and has never really come to justice even though it's the subject of this really big documentary so yeah I'm on the fence about about how harmful or how good um that series was but I I'm I was really shocked about the response to it and also that the lack of it showing that that grooming that led to those decisions being made, which were good decisions in that reality. Yeah, you are very right. And you, you're like when I'm thinking about it, you're quite right. It didn't really show the extent to which they were groomed, why they, they were led to these decisions. And I'm sure that if, if if we were present, which would be impossible to do in a documentary to go through all the texts, or all, all the the personal uh, meetings and the discussions that they were, that they would have, we would empathize with the victim a lot more. Uh, but I have a la- final uh, question for you, Liz, and it's about whose role is it to protect the public? Is it the government, local or national? Is it the police? Is it the individual? Is it families? Is it the employers? Is it charities like Catch Twenty Two who who provide education uh, for how to use social media safely? Whose role is it? This is a really easy one for me. It's absolutely everybody's role. And it should be really transparent that everybody has a role to play in this. And currently, the balance is skewed the wrong way. It's skewed towards the general public and victims of this crime. They are completely responsabilized. You know, you have to spot whether something's a fraud and you have to stop it before it gets too far. Now, with this grooming, most frauds do not have red flags or those red flags are so dampened down and overtaken by a context making it feel right and making um, not even making questions a possibility that makes frauds not visible so then what happens when someone is a victim of of romance fraud for example they then feel that they failed they haven't managed to do something really basic which is protect themselves but actually someone who's been groomed and who's been coerced shouldn't be made responsible, just like victims of coercive control or domestic abuse should not be made responsible for what has happened to them or for not being able to get out of that relationship. So it's everybody's responsibility. Legally, um, we've we've got everyone from, from the police. We also have government, both both um, uh, government um, more broadly, but also local government too. The charity sector is really important in terms of education. um, And quite often the public will listen to um, the charity sector more or might disclose that they've been a victim of fraud um, in in a um, non-legal disclosure. And there's, there is actually a charity, um, there's an organisation I'd like to talk about at this point, it's called Love Said, and they're doing a really, really good job. And that's um, Anna Rowe and Cecilia Philhoy. And Cecilia is actually one of the victims of um, in, that's shown in the Tinder Swindler. And they're providing a service that's um, where people can 
so I'm not sure if I'm a victim of fraud could you let me know or some more general support um, about a family member or they can disclose it there get loads of resources and it's a bit of a halfway house really somewhere where you can safely land um, just like just like Catch 22 Um, and I think the more of these organizations the better yeah great thank you very much Liz that's all we have time for today Uh, thank you so much for this super interesting conversation If you or someone you know has been a victim of fraud, you are not alone. To report fraud in the UK, visit action.fraud.police.uk. To report fraud in Scotland, dial 101. For further support, Catch22's victim services can help. Visit catch-22.org.uk for more information. To learn more about Catch-22's manifesto, check out the link in our show notes. If you liked this episode, please rate, follow and leave us a review. Thank you.